Hey everyone, this is Chad, CEO of Mission.org. And today we're talking to Wade Foster, the CEO of Zapier. Zapier is one of a kind. So if you have a business and you want to use things and automate tasks and generally get more time, be more productive, you should check them out. They're a great company. And in today's episode, we sit down with Wade for round two, where we talk about one of our favorite books. So in the first episode, when Wade and I sat down, we talked about a book called The Outsiders. That's a book about eight hugely successful CEOs who have very, very high returns in one area called capital allocation. Capital allocation is the key to business success. And it's not just making money, it's about allocating that money so it creates not only more money, but more opportunities for shareholders, stakeholders, and the executive team, but also anybody that's impacted by the business. So there are five main categories of capital allocation that the book lays out. And we talk about how to apply these five areas in business. We talk about how Zapier is doing this. And then we also switch gears and talk about how to think about capital allocation in these five areas as it relates to your personal life. Stick around to the end of the episode where Wade and I cover some extra personal tips on how to apply capital allocation, time management, and generally get more out of your personal life. So Wade is an avid reader. He works out a lot. He balances his family life. And I think he has some really interesting philosophies and ideas that you can apply, whether you're a CEO or aspiring executive, or just want to take advice from one. Uh, This is a exciting episode. So stay tuned and let's jump into today's show. Let's take a quick time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. Hey, I know running a business isn't easy. One of the biggest challenges is HR with all its details and regulations. So I chose Trinet. Their experts make everything from payroll to benefits and even compliance really easy. And they offer full service solutions tailored to your industry and your company, whether your team is 10 people or a thousand. For me, that means less worry and more confidence that it's taken care of the right way. You and your employees deserve the same. Check out Trinet for your HR needs today. Wade, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm excited to have you back. We were talking a little bit before we recorded. The last interview we did, we were talking about a book that we both read and enjoyed. It was called The Outsiders. And it was a book on capital allocation. So I'm interested to hear you just basically, you know, what is capital allocation and why were you so excited about the book? Yeah, you know, I think the thing that made me excited to read the book was it digs into this concept of eight CEOs who have basically like the highest returns of, of sort of any CEO across a you know a handful of decades. And they're not necessarily companies that you would have heard of. I think Berkshire Hathaway was like the only one that I was like, oh yeah, I, I know what's going on with those those folks. Sure. But the rest of them were like just companies I was like, oh, just learning about while yeah. reading the book. It was like General Cinema, Ralston Perina, The Washington Post, General Dynamics, Capital Cities Broadcasting, TCI, and Teledyne. So yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you got The Washington Post and Berkshire Hathaway. So it's like, okay, I know those two, but two out of eight, like that felt... That was low. (laughs) Anyway, so this capital allocation is just the idea of part of a business, a big part of like making a business work is money. And so how do you put your money 
to work for you? How do you get more out of it by investing in the right things to sort of just generate more returns over time? And so being able to sort of step back and look at your own company and figure out like, hey, where are we using capital well and where are we not, I think is a a skill that every CEO probably should be developing over time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And when I first glanced at The Outsiders, you know, it's endorsed by Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. So obviously that grabs your attention. And as you dive into it more, the different ways for deploying capital, the author and the business leaders kind of break them down into five main categories. And so we're going to dive into those. I would love to hear how Zapier and you are thinking about these five main categories of capital allocation. And then after we get through the business side, I was hoping to dive into kind of some personal variants to hear about how you're thinking about your personal capital, your personal time. So if you're ready, let's jump into number one. All right, let's do it. So the first way that these high performing CEOs allocate capital is by investing into existing operations. So that's pretty broad, but would love to hear about how you're thinking about investing and reinvesting into existing operations at Zapier. Yeah. You know, when I think about how we invest in sort of our existing operations, I mostly am thinking about how do we get more out of the existing business? How do we scale it out to be more successful? And there's basically a few ways I think that you can do this. One, you're sort of trying to figure out with your existing staff that you have, how do you make them more productive? And so one, that can be investing in automation. So it's like, how do we just create better tools so that our humans don't have to do parts of the work or it's investing in the people. So how do we make the people better? So for example, we spent a lot of time, you know, over the last year investing in coaching programs and growth frameworks and like things like that, that help our people ideally accelerate their own personal learning. Uh, the idea is if you come to Zapier, hopefully you'll be able to develop your skill set faster here than you would if you picked another company. And so that's really exciting. What type, before you go on, are there any specifics of the coaching programs or how did you go about selecting and uh, implementing those if you don't mind? Sure. So there's this, what's the name of the book? I'm not going to be able to think about it. I'll have to get it to you afterwards, but it's, it was developed by a group of tennis coaches where they realized that their most effective coaches that teaching tennis were not actually tennis players themselves. And they're trying to figure out, like, why is that? Why, like, this doesn't make any sense. You would think that the better tennis player you are, the better coach you would be. And so it was just one of these mind-boggling things. And so they started to zoom out and realize and develop a framework for why these coaches who weren't tennis players were being more effective than those who were tennis players at teaching tennis. And it turned out that because these coaches were able to – were not – like they didn't understand tennis, they were able to ask better questions. So they were sort of just curious about what was making it work. And the tennis player themselves was then able to course correct. So for example, a good one would be, hey, you know, where do you think you hit that ball in the last serve? And it forces the tennis player to say, oh, I think I actually hit it a little too high. So I'm going to course correct and try and hit it more square this time. So by just asking the question, you don't actually have to know what the answer is. A good tennis player already knows what the right answer is. They just need to be aware of what they're doing and thinking about that stuff. 
So we basically brought that style of coaching program into the company and we say, hey, you know, a great engineer, a great marketer, a great support person, they already know the right moves that we just have to get better at coaching them through that. Sometimes we have to help them unstick themselves. It's a little bit of like talking to a rubber duck about a problem. You talk to the rubber duck and then you realize you had the answer inside you already. So there's a little bit of that. So that's what our coaching program looks like. And then we still have our sort of classic mentoring where it's more about developing skills where it's like, Hey, I want to learn this particular skill from this expert engineer who knows how to do that skill. We always had that, but this coaching program is the more unique thing. That's fascinating. I think that there's some VCs that haven't been founders that are breathing a sigh of relief or grabbing that book uh, right, right now. That's really cool. And you mentioned some, you know, Zapier is a company that automates a lot of things for you. How are you thinking about automation, maybe from a meta stance, or are you thinking about robotic process automation? What are you up to there? It's a tough one to point to say like, well, in your company, these are the three things you should automate. Like, it's not really, I don't think that's the way to go about deploying it. What it really is, is about shifting your cultural mindset around what is it that you do every day and what are the tasks that you shouldn't be doing? There are things that you should be delegating to something and it could be delegate this to another human, but it also might be, why don't I delegate this to a robot? Because a robot could do this better. Like it's going to do it the exact same way every single time. And it's going to do it on time exact every single time. And so it's about just recognizing those things. And so, you know, one of the things we encourage folks as they come into the organization is we teach them how to use Zapier, the, our own product. So we give them these little quizzes, these little make a zap challenges. So in their first month, it's like, hey, today, try and make a zap that does this. Try and make a zap that does that to really help them get to thinking about automation in different types of ways and get exposed to different sort of personal productivity concepts. And along the way, that helps them develop their own mental framework for how to go automate stuff. And as a result, they come away from it changing how they approach work. I was just talking to one of our support leaders this morning. She's been trying to hire a customer success manager. She's been, and it's been so interesting to hear her think about it because she was, has been interviewing all these folks and asking like, hey, how do you think about some of the automation you do in these customer success roles? And she hear all these manual things people are doing. And she's like, it's just dawned on her. She's like, we are so far ahead of most companies with how they approach this stuff, in part because our tool forces us to be this way. Very cool. And let's jump into the second way here that great CEOs allocate capital, which is by acquiring other businesses. And often we think, you know, acquisitions have to be large, but sometimes whether they're acqui hires or just acquiring interesting IP, there's so many different ways to acquire other businesses. So how are you and Zapier thinking about that? How have you done it? And maybe how are you thinking about it in the future? Yeah. So we've not dove into the ponds of acquiring companies yet, but we've started to think about it more. In fact, we've had more conversations this year than we've had in the history of the company alone, mostly just trying to get a feel for like, you know, what's out there? What are the things that we could be interested in? What if we were to do it? What would it look like? And I think the patience is an important thing. I mean, that was the one thing I learned from the book is these folks tend to be very patient then when they recognize the thing they want, they tend to just get it. Whatever's in the way, they just sort of knock down the door and make it happen. But they, they don't make sudden movements. And so we've been in that learning phase, just really trying to understand what it is that could work, what, it, what might not work for us. 
And I do think you're right that not all acquisitions need to be big ones. And particularly, I think this is critical inside the software world. You look at like how big companies like Instagram or WhatsApp or the Urchin team that was behind now Google Analytics were, or even the YouTube team, those teams were very small when those companies were acquired. But they had some sort of strategic asset or some asset when combined with the parent company's tools or goals or go-to-market strategy is multiplicative. And I think that's the cool thing about when you look at acquiring software businesses is often you do get that leverage. So you can buy something that is small, but when you bring your own expertise to bear on it, you can like really advance that value of that company. And so those are the types of opportunities we're looking for. Very cool. And I think what was interesting too from the book is just how long, well, in the real world, I mean, the book is the real world, but I think some of the examples in the Valley, it's appears like an overnight acquisition, but in reality, both of those folks knew each other for a decade and they just, you know, had casual conversations, but eventually the time was right. Yeah. And so I think that's a big thing is just making sure you're building relationships with other smart people, other good business owners, people who could start businesses and just trying to understand what do they see about the world? You know, does it align with how you think about the world and see if there's fit over time? Definitely. This third one, we might have to reach a bit, but it's issuing dividends. So is there any way you're going about this now or maybe thinking about it in the future, whether those or maybe we could stretch and say those are include benefits for team members. I'll let you take it away. Yeah, we haven't really done issuing dividends, not in at least the way the book talks about it. I think more broadly, the we do like a variance of like a profit sharing bonus type thing and have done that for quite some time. So generally that's more to sort of incentivize and retain employees though, and less about, you know, trying to get investors or anything like that. But I think some of the goals are perhaps the same. It's like you're trying to align interests. You're trying to get people to think long-term. You're trying to figure out like, hey, if good works, what can we do to double down on those good things, basically? So you want your employees aligned. That probably wasn't a great answer, but... (laughs) No, no. Yeah, I think it's... No, it's very complicated. And at the same time, I've heard some folks that are pretty critical of the dividends model. And I think those criticisms, they seem to make sense. And I think we might see like an evolution away from dividends into just focus on free cash flow or the benefits or some of those, you know, reinvesting into employees. So, okay. Number four is paying down debt. So debt doesn't have to be just capital. It doesn't have to be cash. There could be technical design debt, cultural debt, many different things. So sometimes we get out of balance there. How are you thinking about paying down all different kinds of debt? Yeah. This one, I think is, it's all about figuring out what's going to prevent you from, when does debt become quote unquote toxic, right? You mentioned this, like, Hey, a mortgage can be helpful. You get an advance on cash and it allows you to buy an asset and then you can use that asset to accrue over time. Well, the same thing can happen inside of technical debt. So like we've you know, shipped certain features or built certain prototypes, especially for new things that we know won't scale. We know if we put a million users on it or even like a thousand users on it, it probably won't support that load. But we don't need it to. We need to test it out for the first 10 users. And if that concept works for the first 10, we can look, go back and say, okay, let's now rewrite this, do it the correct way. We've started using the saying of prototype or productize for our engineering org. And so when you're working on a project, you need to know which one you're working on. So if you're working on a prototype, the idea is that you might throw all of this code away 
it's there to prove a point. It's there to do a proof of concept and see if you've got something. And so don't worry about if it's like exactly the type of code that will scale versus if you're working on productized stuff, this stuff has to be built to high security standards, high reliability standards, because we're going to make this a thing that gets shipped out to production. This is going to be a thing that all of our users see. And so we talk about it in that way. And it also makes it easier to throw stuff away. So like we know prototypes, hey, it's, if we throw all this stuff away, that's not a failure. That's just part of the design. This is part of how we're going about it. So I think you can do some of that stuff, you know, in other parts, not just technical, but you can certainly do it with design. Cultural might be a little harder. I think cultural is one you don't want to get in too much depth there because, you know, the foundations of your company often are the first people in the org. Uh, so I don't think you really want to get too far behind on cultural. That's one, I've, if I'm running a company, I, I don't like to take out the loan there. For sure. Yeah, and it sounds like you have a philosophy there of small amounts of debt are okay if they're in pursuit of a proof of concept that can then be productized, which is exactly. which makes a lot of sense, mm -hmm. for sure. And so number five here is about repurchasing stock and the alternatives for raising capital, whether that's tapping internal cash flow, issuing debt, or raising equity. So Zapier, mm -hmm. you have some amazing investors, and I'm, I'm not sure if you've taken on much debt or what's going on with cash flow, but I would love to hear about how you're thinking about generating more capital. Well, you know, I think the best way to do it is if you can just generate your own cash flows, get more customers, generate cash flows. That way, it's the least dilutive. You can take those returns and invest them right back in the company, however you see fit. So that's predominantly what we focus on. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about other things. However, I do believe, and we've done it on a rare occasion, that if you think that your company's value is going to go up over time and you have extra cash on hand and there's opportunities to purchase your stock, you should do that. Because if you believe your, your price is going to go up, why not? So I do think that's the way to think about it. If you have that cash on hand and you're not using it for other reasons yet, it can be a pretty handy thing to over time to have that equity back. Hey, let's take a quick time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. When you're growing your business, you'll need to solve all kinds of HR challenges and you'll need Trinet. Trinet gives you expert advice on HR compliance, attracting top talent, and how to efficiently outsource your HR. Get started now by checking out Trinet's free e-guides at trinet.com slash e-guide to learn more about how to tackle these issues today. Now, let's jump back into today's episode. And when it comes to generating more cash flows and free cash flows by whether that's upselling existing customers, finding ways to service them better, or bringing on new customers and growing, how's that process going for you? And are you still, you know, what size company is like your, your sweet spot or yeah, where's that at? Yeah, I think there's a couple ways we think about it. So, you know, we've been in business now for eight years. So our sort of main product line still has a lot of growth headwinds, but it's getting pretty big now. We've been fairly successful with it. So a big part of the work we do is let's say 70% of our effort goes into just growing that base and making sure that it can continue to grow. However, any sort of base is going to eventually reach the market cap. I don't know how long that's going to take us to get there. You know, I have some projections and we do forecasts internally, that sort of thing. But there is going to be a point in time where we hit that. And so 
with the other 30% of our time, we're thinking about what are entirely new products, services, or product extensions, or new market segments that we can sell into. That way, once, you know, sort of our main product line hits that ceiling, we already have one or two other things that have started to grow and you can sort of replace that growth trajectory. Once you get to a certain point, you have to be thinking about your business in this way. It has to be multifaceted where, you know, you have multiple things that can grow grow in tandem and it de-risks, you know, your portfolio a little bit. And is there any specific example of a new product or service that you're thinking about offering that you can talk about now? You'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> like that. And when it comes to like total market size as well, I think that's really interesting that you're already planning and you've built some models to show, you know, what are the upper limits of that? And have you found that your modeling capabilities as a company, are they improving? Are you, do they make you feel better? Do they help inform your decisions? Because predicting the future is, you know, nearly impossible, right? So I'm just curious about your views on kind of like forecasting and modeling in general. Yeah, I mean, it's forecasting is like half art, half science. Definitely the longer we're in business, the better we get at it because we just have more practice at it. We have a lot more history that we can sort of base our projections on and we have a better feel for where things are going. However, like it's still part art. Like it's, there's still part of it that's a human looking at a problem and saying, you know what, I know something about this the how the world might turn out that no model is going to be able to take into account. And so that art piece is the part that, you know, is hard for us to figure out as part of our forecasting models, but we, we still try and acknowledge it. We try and acknowledge that, Hey, there's flaws in this. There's assumptions baked into this that are probably inaccurate. Sure. And when you are having conversations now, eight years into the business with other business owners or folks that you're trying to sell to, how have those changed and how have they evolved over time? Or do you find yourself still answering some of the same questions you were five years ago or seven years ago? You know, I think when I'm talking to like other business owners and stuff like that, <laughs> the one thing I get asked about all the time is how we just grow the company totally <laughs> distributed. How do we do this without an office? That's the thing everyone seems to want to know these days. Early on, I certainly got the skeptics look on that stuff and saying like, hey, you're crazy. There's no way you could ever do this. But that has certainly been one area. My hat's off to you for that one. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah, that's one that certainly the tenor of the conversations have changed there, uh, where people are much more open and curious about how the model works and less skeptical. So that's probably the biggest change. (laughs) Was that something that was it sounds like that was something you knew intuitively was just going to work, right? Building in a remote fashion. Was that based on a hunch? Were you facing strong headwinds from people? It sounds like you were. So how did you kind of develop the fortitude or the proof of concept to really build that out? Yeah. So we started the company as a side project. Side projects don't have offices. So because they simply can't afford it. So we got used to working, you know, from coffee shops, from our apartments, from wherever we had an internet connection. Then after, you know, the company really started going, we've gone full time on it and we came around to hiring our first people. We had moved out to California and we were asking people, hey, what advice do you have on hiring? We've never hired anyone before. And they said, hey, why don't you hire former colleagues? That'll de-risk the hiring process for you a little bit. So all of our colleagues are back in the Midwest and we'd heard of some other companies that were doing this remote work thing, this distributed team thing. So we're like, ah, let's give it a try, see what happens. 
So we hired someone in Chicago that I was an old colleague. We hired another one in Columbia, Missouri, that was an old colleague. And I think we hired someone in St. Louis too. So, you know, here we are at six people spread across four different cities. And what we realized was software was still getting shipped. Customers were happy. Customers were growing. Revenue was growing. And the team was happy. So all the things that we were sort of like make something successful seemed to be happening. And we were like, you know what? This remote thing probably can work. So let's just make it part of who we are. And this will allow us to hire great people anywhere in the world. And so pretty early on, we did double down and say, like, this is going to be part of our story. Yeah, I love that. Sticking to your guns. Wise move that's uh, paid off there. And when it comes shifting gears a little bit, getting into the personal side of these five different ways to deploy capital questions. Yeah, I'm like, I'm pretty excited to hear. I think what people want to know most is, you know, what's a CEO's day to day like? How are they staying sane? How are they staying healthy? So yeah, if you're ready, let's dive into personal equivalent of these questions. Let's do it. Awesome. So the business equivalent was investing in existing operations. So how are you personally going about investing in yourself or your personal operations at home? Yeah, there's a few things I do. I have a coach that I work with regularly. I think one of the most important things a CEO does is learn because you're constantly having to evolve your company. You're constantly having to evolve your products, your go-to-market And most of the things that you know today are not going to help you do that well. So you have to constantly be willing to learn as you're in front of new problems. And my coach helps me do that well. And I just read a lot as well. So that helps me do that too. And probably the third thing is I spend a lot of time just interviewing. Well, I say interviewing, (laughs) catching up with other business owners and sort of asking them how they approach different types of problems, getting their perspective. Things. Very cool. So those are three. Then I also spend a fair amount of time investing in my own sort of like just personal health. I get my workout in six out of seven days in the week. And that I think allows me to operate at a fairly high capacity when I'm working. Same thing with sleep. I get eight hours of sleep every night too. Very cool. And yeah, excellent advice. So the second one here was about acquiring other businesses. And I took a leap again here and kind of just want to make a question around how are you going about acquiring skills that are high demand and way outside your comfort zone? Or are you just doubling down on what you're good at? Is there anything you're pursuing right now that's like way outside your comfort zone for you? So like a lot of this stuff around financing businesses is is fairly new to me. So even just the you know, the outsiders book I read about a year ago, there's still a lot there that I'm like trying to get better at and digging into. So I'm spending a decent amount of time. Well, I say a decent amount, a couple hours a week trying to understand M&A, CorpGev, like how people go about this and and, um, how they finance businesses and just really understanding the nitty gritty details of it. So that when the opportunity presents itself at Zapier, we're prepared to take advantage of those things. That's awesome. And the third one here is how are you giving back to yourself? So how are you paying yourself some dividends or your family and your friends? Yeah, I think I do try and limit my sort of in office hours to like 40 hours a week, even though the business is sort of constantly, you know, running as a background. It's constantly a background task in the back of my head. You know, you can't, you can't really turn off those shower thoughts entirely. Yeah. And then with the time outside of that, I do use it to spend time with my family 
time with my friends. I don't miss those workouts. I make sure to get a good night's sleep. You know, I have a good reading habit that I make sure to spend time on. I try and use those ways, use that time away from work in ways that are going to advance my sort of personal interests, but also can get back to work. So they're sort of in symbiotic. Do you find sometimes that taking more personal time leads to way better business insights in a fraction of the time? That's what I'm starting to find as I begin to take time off and, you know, focus on, you know, fixing myself, healing myself a little bit. I find that the quality of ideas are much, much better that I can bring back to the business. Have you found the same? You know, sometimes not. And sometimes it's not about like taking, you know, I think a lot of times people are like, oh, you got to take a big old long vacation to decompress. And it's not always that way for me. Like sometimes for me, it's, you know, I really just could use the afternoon to go on a long walk and not have to like be around my laptop or, you know, answering email or doing Slack. I just need to get away from that. And just an afternoon is enough to like dig into a topic that I have been meaning to get into. But it's just depending on like how heavy the work has been, how intense the situations have been. You know, sometimes it is a little more time off. Sometimes it is just an afternoon open here or there. So I think it just depends. Awesome. And when it comes to debt, have there been any times in your personal life, whether you've accrued some health or relationship debt and how have you gone about fixing that or paying it back? Yeah. I mean, the exercise one was a big one. You know, when I started the company, I gained the the founder 15, which (laughs) for me was more like 20. And so I realized, well, I, and I also lost my dad to a heart attack pretty early on as well. And uh, I'm so, that yeah, was, sorry to hear that. It's really, yeah. Rough. I mean, it was a bit of a wake up call. It was like, Hey, you know, you know, I can't take that. I get another day for granted. I need to do a better job of taking care of myself. And so I started to figure out, okay, how can I make exercise a more routine part of my days and my weeks? And it took me a while. I sort of, you know, <laughs> fell off the wagon a few times on that until, you know, probably about 2014 is when I finally got it to stick. And so I've been at it pretty regularly for, you know, six years or so now. Were there a couple things that you did to get it to stick or was it just that persistence of eventually it became a habit and you had the muscle memory and it was just part of your lifestyle? Yeah, I think that if I reflect on it, I think the thing that made it stick was I just found an exercise routine that didn't feel like exercise to me that felt more like fun. Uh, So I had played racquetball in college with my roommates a whole bunch. And I finally just sort of said to myself, you know what, I'm just going to get back into racquetball because I liked it. I had a good time doing it. It didn't feel like exercise. It just felt like me hanging out with my friends. And so I just looked, I got online and I looked for some courts around my home and tried to find some leagues and things like that. I just signed up for a league. I emailed the director and said, Hey, I'm played in college. Like, I don't know what level I'm at. So I don't know which league I should go in. So he invited me down and I played him in, you know, one-on-one and he smoked me and he said, here, you're probably in the intermediate league. And so I signed up and I just started doing it and I've stuck with it ever since then. And I've, I've gotten to where I play in some, I played in a few tournaments, not a ton, but like, I'm pretty serious about it now. It's been a nice thing because it gets the competitive juices flowing. It's a bit of a social outlet and it is exercise too. Yeah. That's awesome. I think as adults, we forget it's okay to play sometimes and doesn't have to feel like exercise, whatever that means. So. Oh yeah. It's like, I just, you know, as much as I want to love running, I just don't love running. (laughs) I'm never going to be a runner. (laughs) 
Yeah, same. I just end up with resentment afterwards. Yeah, exactly. It's just too boring yeah. for me. I just, you know, I wish I loved it because it seems like the people who do love it, they really get a lot out of it, but it's just not for me. They love sharing and proselytizing about it. That's for sure. That's Good for them. That's More the power case. to them. Same thing with like CrossFitters, right? Oh, they love that stuff. Yeah, you're not kidding. And, and yeah, it's just not for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. So when it comes to like longer term visions about your life and about your future, are there any uh, bucket list things or five, 10 year visions that you meditate on regularly? You know, I think a big part of, this is a good question. So oftentimes what we'll do is sit down either as a family or as a business and try and say, hey, what do we want to happen for the future? And so we'll look at the business and say, hey, in five years, we want to be here. Well, if in five years, we want to be here, that means as you start to work backwards, what it takes to get that far, you say, okay, that means today we got to start doing this stuff. And so we do go through that exercise to, to figure some of that stuff out. And it does really force you to get clear about where you should be spending your time right now. I think a big mistake many people do is they don't do that prioritization exercise. They don't say, what do I want for myself in five years or 10 years? And instead they just show up, they wake up every morning and they just go through the motions. And so, yeah, they get a ton done on their to-do list maybe. They maybe check off a whole bunch of boxes, but none of those boxes that get checked off are in service of this longer term vision that they wanna go chase. And so we do try and do that as a business. And, you know, my wife and I try and do that as a family too, to figure out, hey, where are we heading? I like that a lot. And when you're taking a step back from work, you know, you mentioned the reading, the working out and everything. You make it a habit to talk to like X amount of other business owners and friends a week. Are there any like specific habits you have there or weekly rituals that you try to make sure happen? You know, this is one where I have been better at it in time. So like, when I was really trying to, as we were going from maybe about 20 people to a hundred people, my management skills, my leadership skills were like pretty, well, let's just say they were developing. <laughs> they could use some work. And so right. about every quarter or so I was reaching out to like C-level leaders at, and other founders at companies who are about a stage ahead of me and asking them, Hey, what were your biggest lessons learned over the last year? What are the things that you wish you would have invested in sooner? What are the things that you invested a lot in that turned out not to matter so much just to get their a different perspective on that. And I still do that to an extent, but I haven't been as regimented about it. Just even talking about this reminds me I should do more of that again, because it really was such a valuable learning opportunity to be, have that sort of once a quarter, once every six months to do that. Yeah. I think that's excellent advice. And when it comes to advice, has there been any advice that you've received from those folks that's been transformative? whether it's people that are ahead of you or investors or could even be in books, like what's some of the best business advice you've received? You know, I think the one that sort of caught me off guard was the choice to get a coach. You know, I sort of had this opinion of like the coaching industry that it was a little bit of like a snake oil industry. And it turns out that viewpoint is fairly merited. There's a lot of folks out there that are trying to take your money for you without offering much in return. However, I started talking to all these CEOs who were like, do you have a coach? Do you have a coach? Do you have a coach? I'm like, what are you talking about? But all these smart people kept asking me about it. So eventually I was like, okay, I gotta, you know, these smart people are suggesting it. I need to take this a little more seriously and try and understand what do they know that I don't know. So I started investigating it 
you know, talked to a bunch of different coaches and then found one that I liked and I've been working with them for two years now. And that's one of those gifts that keeps on giving because you're able to sort of, you know, he's able to help me grow through different stages because he's seen companies and CEOs at so many different stages that it just, it's just allowed me to develop, I think, at a much more accelerated pace. I think that's so important what you just mentioned that he's seen companies at, you know, a variety of stages. Did you go through a vetting process? Did you take a recommendation to find him? Did you go through working with like a dozen coaches beforehand? How'd you go about finding that founder coach fit? So I, all those people who were asking me, do you have a coach? Do you have a coach? I just asked them, who is your coach? And then I emailed all those coaches and I had like a, a sort of a complimentary session, I guess, for lack of a better word with all of them. And then the one that I sort of just hit it off with the most and felt most comfortable with was the one that I said, hey, let's, I'd like to do this regularly with you. And when it comes to the broader tech industry or small business and startup industry as a whole, are there any trends you're seeing or conversations you're having that make you optimistic or maybe worried about the industry? You know, I think you mentioned software and small business in the same sentence. And I think this is one of these underrated trends and underreported on trends that gets me pretty excited, which there are thousands of what I'm going to call small business software shops. It's kind of the modern day equivalent of like your mom and pop store where, you know, business that has maybe five, 10 employees, they pull in a million to 10 million a year in revenue and just nail a very particular niche. It's maybe not going to grow like a venture-backed business will grow, but they solve one particular problem for a very narrow market opportunity really well, better than anyone else could. And the number of these businesses is just staggering, thousands. And so I think this is one of those things that's just so vastly under-talked about and under-reported on. And I think there's just this budding sort of industry around small business software. And they're increasingly connected by software because I mean, in the past, investors and VCs used to consider that market like the impossible to penetrate because it would just cost you so much. But now all these (laughs) folks are online, they're looking, they're searching for the same things. And yeah, I I couldn't agree more there. You know, I was walking around town today and it seems like those shops, they really thrive in a local environment where they can like become a part of the community, become known as like the tech gurus that solve something. And I think what's exciting now is that the costs to reach them are falling rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. So Wade, are there any final thoughts or stories that you like to share? Maybe you share these stories with incoming new hires at Zapier or you find yourself retelling them again and again. What's like your favorite business story to tell? Well, you know, I think tying it back in together with the message from outsiders, you know, I think the one thing that has stood out to me is that you know, best practices have a place, a time and a place. If you need a sort of low risk approach that will sort of work, you know, best practice is great, but world-class companies are made by doing something new and different, by taking your own creativity, your own expertise, and applying it in a way that no one else has ever really done before. So, don't be afraid every now and then of doing something a little weird and a little different. It may not play out for you, But all the best things that we have as a society have happened because someone took a chance on something that felt a little goofy. So don't be afraid to do that. And I think, you know, Outsiders speaks to that. It's a bunch of iconoclastic leaders who said, you know, I'm going to stick to my convictions and do things a little bit against the grain. 
and it worked out great for him. I love that. Yeah. And at the time, nobody was patting him on the back, cheering him on for a lot of these decisions. Yeah. No one even recognized how good it was. In fact, people thought they were a little weird. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, That's excellent advice. And all the great things start out pretty weird and are persecuted for quite a while before they get adopted. So Wade, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming back on. And congrats at everything that's going on at Zapier. Look forward to continuing to watch your journey. And yeah, I can't wait to see what happens over the next five and 10 years. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Chad. As a small business owner in ultra competitive Silicon Valley, I used to worry about losing my top talent. I don't anymore. And here's why. I figured out how to offer access to robust benefits like a big company does, but I couldn't do it on my own. That's where Trinet came in. Trinet helps tens of thousands of businesses across the U.S. with HR. They provide you top-notch, industry-tailored services for your HR needs. If you're building a business, you know you need a great team. Trinet is your team for HR. And when you choose Trinet, you'll help support independent media like Mission Daily. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.